are a few weeks into a new series uh, called Stories by Jesus, uh, where we are looking at different parables found in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We've been in the Gospel of Luke uh, since Christmas, uh, going through the songs of Advent and then going through the mission of Jesus found in Luke chapter 4, and now looking specifically at stories that Jesus tells Uh, that are given to us through the Gospel of Luke. And so for the first uh, Sunday, we looked at the the parable of the mustard seed, looking at how God uses the most insignificant things, these, these seemingly insignificant things that can be used for the greatness of God's kingdom, that we bring really small offerings that God can do incredible things with. We, we went across the street into the empty lot and took mustard seed and planted those into the dirt, saying, God, do big things uh, through the small efforts of this church family. Uh, last week, uh, Lee Smith shared with us the, the story of the Good Samaritan and looking what, what does it mean to be neighbor and what does it mean to love one another. And so as we are looking at parables, we see that these parables are these, these stories that draw the listener in to, to engage the listener. That when we read these stories, when we hear these stories, we should find ourselves in them. And it's not about interpreting what the story means, but looking at what does the story do? Does it challenge us? Does it stretch us? Does it refine us or confront us or provoke something in us? And depending on where we find ourselves in these stories, we can have much different emotional reactions. And so today we get to my favorite parable, one that in five years here I have not preached on this parable yet, but this is by far my favorite. And this is the parable of the prodigal son. This story of not one lost son, but really two lost sons. Both find themselves removed from the family, distanced from the father. But before we get to this story in Luke chapter 15, I want to take a little bit of a side trail. And I want us to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, I don't know about you, but, but most of us have different smells, different sights, uh, different sounds that prompt something in our memory. We, we, we smell that certain thing, and suddenly these, these memories flood back to us. Or we see a certain object or hear a certain song played, and suddenly you go back to that really important time in your life, something that was really meaningful. Um, There are songs that are played that remind me of of our wedding day. Or there are certain scents that remind you of a grandparent. Or there are certain objects that remind you of that childhood thing that, that you just found so much joy in. And so we have these different things. Scripture does that as well. We have these different verses that that can flood back memories to us. So for me, I cannot uh, read uh, Joshua chapter 1 and 2, the story of of being strong and courageous without going back to, to a night of worship at the branch, sitting on the back pew, wondering what in the world God had in store for me. What did he want me to claim where did he want me to go? What did, I, what did he want me to do with my life? I remember exactly where I was sitting. 
And exactly what I wrote in my journal in that moment is, as I think about Joshua chapter 1 and 2 10 years ago. Or I hear the story of Abraham answering the call to go to a foreign land away from his family and I immediately go into that upstairs classroom with my small group where I'm reading through this story and thinking God might be calling me to Albuquerque. Or I read Hebrews 6.19 and think about hope. These scriptures have meaning to us. They bring back memories. And for me, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is one of those that, that, that in, in 2009, I was, uh, or actually 2007, going through a season in my life where, where I, I was really uncertain about who I was and, and who I was with God. And this passage meant so much to me. 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness. For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if that was transitory, came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? How many of you have that on a refrigerator magnet? What is going on here? We've got this comparison that Paul is giving us between the glory of the old covenant, the glory of the old law of Moses, and the surpassing glory. That it's so much greater what we have in Jesus Christ. That if one was able to show the glory of God, the Spirit shows so much more. Continuing, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read it has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so we, with veiled faces, have the veil removed by Jesus, so that we are able to reflect the image of God. Reflect the glory of God. 
And so this is not one of those easy passages that just flows off of the tongue really well, right? Because the word glory is used 12 times. And so when you think about what is glory, one commentator gives this this definition of glory as being the awe-inspiring, indescribable presence of God. So when we talk about the glory of God being seen through the face of Moses, we're talking about people seeing the awe-inspiring, indescribable presence of God. And that was so terrifying for them, they insisted that he would wear a veil so they could not see the full glory of God. And then, in this ministry of Jesus, in this ministry of the Spirit, that veil is taken away to something even more glorious. Under the Old Covenant, the glory of God is described in in things like flames from a bush, or thunder and lightning, or earthquakes, or loud trumpet blasts, smoke and fire. This is the glory of God. This is the indescribable presence of God. And so the glory of Christ is even more glorious than that. It is even more indescribable, awe-inspiring. And it is the transformation of a person, the change in a person, the turning of a person to Christ that is greater than anything else. That is the most awe-inspiring, indescribable thing that you can see when a person is transformed into the likeness of Christ. When a person turns to God, that veil is taken away. And we are loved, and we are accepted, and we are forgiven, and there is freedom in that. And so we must kneel before God in surrender and allow Christ to remove that veil. So now we have this image of the glory of God reflecting out of those who have been transformed into the glory of Christ. And now we get to our parable, Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 gives us this trilogy of stories. The first one is this shepherd. This shepherd is out. He has a hundred sheep and discovers that one of these hundred is now lost. And so he leaves the 99 behind and goes to find the lost sheep. He finds the lost sheep, brings that lost sheep back into the flock, and then calls his neighbors calls his friends, and throws a party. Our second parable. A woman is in her house, has ten coins, and discovers that one of those ten coins is now lost. This is a significant loss for her, and so she lights a lamp and tears her house apart trying to find this lost coin. And she finds the lost coin, And she tells her neighbors, and she invites her friends, and she throws a party because what was lost is now found. And then we get to a third story in verse 15, or verse 11. 
It paints this picture of, of two sons. A father has two sons, and the youngest son comes to the father and says, Give me my inheritance, which is as good as saying, I wish you were dead. Give me what I should inherit after you die, before you die. And so the father says, yes, I will split my inheritance and give the two sons their portion of the inheritance. And the younger son takes that inheritance, cashes it in, moves away from the family, removes himself from the family, goes to a distant land, and squanders that on wild living. And then a famine strikes, and he cannot feed himself. He, he gets whatever desperate job he could find feeding pigs, and, and he's so hungry, he just wants to eat what the pigs are eating. And he comes to his senses. He realizes that even the servants in his father's household, they have it better off than he does. And so he packs up what little he has, and he heads back home. He has hit rock bottom. He has come to his senses. He has made an about face. He has repented. And so he heads home prepared to beg to just be a servant in his father's household. He says it this way in verse 18. I will, let, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now here, this younger son has not been acting like a son. He rejected his father, he rejected his household, and went his own way, and now he comes back and says, Father, will you at least let me be a servant in your household? But the father who is waiting for his son to return sees him a long way off, sees him at the distance, and goes running for him. Embraces him, kisses him, and invites him back into the family. Invites him back to be his son. He won't even listen to what the son has to say. And so what does he do? He does what the shepherd does. He, says, he does what the woman does with the lost coin. He invites his friends and neighbors and he throws a party. He celebrates that his son has returned. Verse 24, For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found so they began to celebrate. This is a moment that is captured beautifully in this painting by Rembrandt, The Return of the Prodigal Son. In this painting, you see a father embracing his son. A son on his knees, missing a shoe, tattered clothing, on his knees in front of his father. This is a massive canvas, six feet wide, eight feet tall. And so you see here the, the beauty of a father embracing his son. But the father and son are not at the center of the, of the painting. They're off to one side. Because at the other side, standing at a distance, looking on to the scene of what's going on here, is another brother. A man had two sons. 
And so we see this other brother looking on from a distance. He hasn't been a part of the story since the introduction, and now he comes back into the story. He, he comes from the fields and, and discovers that there's a party going on in his father's house. He hasn't been invited to this party. And he learns that the celebration is this homecoming for someone who was his brother. This brother that had rejected his family. And now he's come back and they're throwing him a party. He's not happy. He's angry. It says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. This brother does not call him father. This brother does not call the younger brother brother. I have slaved for you. He's put himself in a position of a slave, not as a son. He doesn't refer to him as father. And it says, this son of yours, this one who wasted everything, who screwed up his life, has come back and now you throw him a party. There is resentment deep within him. And so really, there are two lost sons. This one never left home, but he's just as lost as the one who went on to wild living. The, the lostness of the younger brother, that one's easy to see. It's easy to see that he, he took everything and went to a foreign land and had wild living. But this older son, it's harder to see his lostness. Because he sits in church every Sunday. He stayed at home. He continued to do what was expected of him. He continued to work hard for the household. But he was full of bitterness. He was full of resentment. Outwardly, he was faultless. He was the model son, but inwardly we see his true character come out. He's faced with this invitation to come home and be a part of the celebration, but he stands at a distance looking on with judgment. He's unwilling to celebrate. He's angry. He's, he's resentful. He's jealous. He's self-righteous. He is a complainer. I've slaved away all these years doing the right thing, and you've just ignored me. And so is he really reflecting the inheritance of his father? Is he embracing who he is supposed to be in this household? Is the unity of the family even a priority for him? Or is being right more important? Unfortunately, the parable ends short of an answer. What will the son do? Will he come in and celebrate with his brother? Or will he stay on the outside? looking at this wayward son. 
The father is seeking reconciliation. The father is, bring, is wanting both sons to return to the household, to return to the family. In 31, it says, My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because your bro- this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The sheep is found, the coin is found, the son is found. And how will we respond? Will we celebrate in that? And so the question for us, because this is a parable, is where do you find yourself in the story? What makes you uncomfortable? What inspires you? What encourages you? Because we see ourselves in different places of the story. And maybe there's bits and pieces of all of it that we find ourselves into. Parables remind us, they provoke us, they confront us, they refine us, they disturb us. So what is disturbing about this story? The younger son is one. He's kneeling before God. He's in tattered clothes. He is shoeless. It is obvious that he has wandered off and has screwed up. And here he is on his knees, surrendering to God. And God embraces him and loves him regardless. And so we can see ourselves in that place. We've messed up. We've fallen short. But we kneel before the cross and we surrender. Say, God, take me back. But I think there's part of this older son that we can relate to as well. Where we've been working hard. We've been doing it right. We've we've been making the good choices. We've been going through this. And there is somebody who's more screwed up than we are. And we don't know how to deal with that screwed up person. And we get a little bit of that self-righteousness. That I've got it together. Why can't you get it together? And so we become that son that is standing on the edge, looking down at the son that comes back. And so which one of those sits with you? Because both are just as lost. Both need to surrender to God. Both are covered in a veil that has clouded how they view God and how others view them. And they are needing Christ to remove that veil so the full glory of God can be seen through them. They need Christ to come and transform them into something different because on their own, they are screwed up. On their own, they are are wasteful and selfish. On their own, they are judgmental and condemning. But on their knees in front of God, the veil is taken away. And the glory of God can be seen through them. God wants to bring them both home. He wants a restoration of the entire family because that is the most glorious thing. The glory of God is is shown in finding what was lost. The awe-inspiring, indescribable presence of God is seen when the lost are found. That is the most glorious thing. That is the most miraculous thing. 
That is the most awe-inspiring thing. That it is in seeing lives transformed. Greater than thunder and lightning, greater than, mount, greater than mountains that, that shake to their core, is seeing the sun that returns. Seeing the brother embrace the returning son, all joining the family together. And so the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, the lost son or lost sons, are all about finding what was lost, reconciling it with God for the glory of God. Both brothers need to fall in in humble submission to the feet of their father before they can be found. And so though the parable ends there, the story does not because the transformation is not this single moment. Life has to continue when when the, the son stands up and rejoins the family. What happens next? Becoming more like Christ is this, this progressive process. It's this, this change that happens over time as we learn how to have Jesus remove that veil so the glory of God can be seen greater and greater. As I continue to grow to be more like Christ, I realize that the position that I'm in is changing. That my position is not as younger son, my position is not as older son, but I'm growing into what does that mean to be the father Because as we are transformed, we begin to reflect the glory of God for others. That we are the ones standing there waiting to embrace the lost. We are the ones standing there with open arms. We are the ones running to the son who's coming back. That is ones that are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus, a mirror reflects that glory to others. That we are a mirror reflecting the awe-inspiring, indescribable presence of God. They no longer see us, they see God. And in the face of that Father, you see the face of God. We look at the painting and we see what we, we see the father's face glowing. This bright spot in a dark painting. We're not just called to be a son who returns to a relationship with the father. We're we're not just the the older son who's standing judgmentally on the side, we're called to become like him. Not just to be received by him, but to be like him. We take on the character of God. We reflect his glory. We're supposed to be the ones with the open arms. Henry Nouwen in his book, Return of the Prodigal Son, says, real joy and real fulfillment can only come from welcoming home those who have been hurt and wounded on their life's journey and loving them with a love that neither asks nor expects anything in return.
that's where real joy and real fulfillment come from. Reflecting the glory of God means loving like God, accepting like God, forgiving like God, sharing freedom for life like God. And so what does it mean for us to be on our knees surrendering to God, but then standing up and being in that position to be the father for others, to be the mother for others? To be that person who stands with open arms to the hurt and to the wounded. You can't stay on your knees the entire time. It's time to extend that to others. And so God wants each of us in his family. He wants to reconcile the brokenness that comes from sin. He wants to to use us in the lives of others. And so we need to allow Christ to unveil us, to turn, and in turn, we reflect back the glory, this wonderful, awe-inspiring, indescribable presence of God. We reflect that back like a mirror reflects light. And the, the musical uh, Les Mis, my favorite musical, going to combine all my favorites into one sermon. <laughs> I have my favorite parable and now my favorite musical, which is a parable for me. Because it is this incredible story of grace and forgiveness. It is the story of a man who receives this gift that he doesn't deserve, and then he takes that gift to be a father for others to reflect the glory of God to others. And countless people are blessed because of his life and work. He adopts a child and raises her as his own. He becomes a business owner that employs hundreds of people that turns around an entire town. And so it is a story of grace and forgiveness and then using that grace and forgiveness to be a blessing to others. And as he is on his deathbed in the finale, the lyrics are, to love another person is to see the face of God. That to love another person, to be that father, standing there with open arms to love another person. That is to see the face of God. We reflect the glory of God and our love for others. And so where do you see yourself in the story? Is it time to drop to your knees and say, I surrender I've been off in the distant land in wild living and it is time to get on my knees and repent. Are you that smug, distant brother who needs to get on his knees as well and be embraced by the Father? You've been doing it yourself for too long. You're confident in your own abilities and it's time to be embraced by the Father. Or is it time to stand up And be the face of God to someone who is hurt and wounded and in need of a Savior. Let's stand together. So in this story, 
Where do you find yourself? And what is God saying to you in this process? What is he saying to you as you listen to these words, as you hear this story? How is the Spirit convicting you and moving in you right now? And then what are you going to do about it? Because we need to walk in faithful obedience. God wants to see us changed. He wants to see us transformed. He wants to see us reflecting his glory in the lives of others. And so be obedient to what God is prompting you to this morning. Uh, It may be spending time between you and God. It may be engaging in this song together. Uh, We're going to have shepherds down front that you can pray with. Uh, You're invited to pray with one another as a family, as a life group, as friends. Uh, Don't be afraid to move around and pray or just spend some time with you and God saying, ah, this is where I see myself in the story. God, help me move to the next place. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word that convicts us, that inspires us, that encourages us. And God, I pray that we will fill your embrace, that we will fill your love for us, that we will see you as the Father that, that embraces and holds us regardless of where we've been. God, we surrender to you and pray that you will continue to move in us this miraculous transformation. God, fill us with your spirit that changes us, rewires us, molds us into something different so that we can reflect your awe-inspiring, indescribable presence. It's in Jesus' name we pray.